far right, and far left. If you're sick of tacking points from the extremes, if you would rather hear about ways America could get along, then you're listening to your new favorite guy from the political void, also known as the middle of America politics. Let's join our host for an entertaining look at politics. Here's Craig Allen! Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. It is that time of year for festive giving, lights and trees, kids having fun, older adults, of course, uh, sleep in front of the TV, and a lot of great food, pies, hams, and tamales, which is a Texas tradition, of course, and grandma sneaking in to look under the tree. (laughs) Well, just kidding about that. It is the American holiday of Christmas, and we are so thankful you have joined us once again. This show today will commemorate the 247th anniversary of an enormous moment in U.S. history and in the modern history of Christmas and the world, because on that day, Christmas changed forever for everybody. Why? We will profile the hero behind that change in today's program in our Greatest American Heroes segment, and we will discuss the changes to our holiday. Happy Slappy. What it was like before this hero's journey and a brave night that he undertook and how it has changed forever and evolved thereafter. We will look at the word impeachment in today's program, what it really means and how it really works according to our constitution and our poli sci for the normal guy feature. We will tell you the story of how silent it was in Europe almost 110 years ago this week in a new segment we call War is Hell, So Who Can Be Well? We also have a new movie to discuss in our movies that protect us from political correctness. It is called The Phantom Thread. It is not for kids, but we will keep the discussion kid-friendly. And I am Craig Allen. We have a insightful and inspiring quote for you that comes back from that same leader in history that we are going to discuss in this program. We're gonna make it a lot about him today. And we thank you for joining us today on Lefty Lucy Righty Tidy, a Texan caught in the middle, and we will get into our first segment here shortly.
247 years ago, last night, this guy crossed the Delaware and changed history forever and the fortunes of the Revolutionary War here in the United States. This great American hero is so well known that I'm not even gonna go through the usual thing here <laughs> and instead focus on him, <laughs> his background, his journey that he made. And we're gonna do this in a two-parter for the first time ever. His name, of course, if you know what I'm talking about, is George Washington. He was born on February the 22nd, 1732 in Westmoreland County, Virginia. His father had gone to school in England, but settled down in Virginia. He did not go to school regularly, believe it or not, as a child. <laughs> However, he was still a very good student. And he studied things, kids wait for it, trigonometry <laughs> and surveying. And he also learned how to grow tobacco in school. <gasps> so we don't teach everything the same way we used to. No! His father died when he was just 11 years old. So he went through a tough bit of a stretch there in his childhood. Ah. And he had to grow up quickly. He became a surveyor by the time he was 16 years old. And his first job was assisting in surveying a large plot of land. Wait for it. Five million acres to be exact Ooh. which was owned by lord fairfax wow that sounds very official he made ventures into the western wilderness of the united states and he became very good at it Yahoo! and this took over much of his adult life until the ideas of revolution began to spring in his mind and in the minds of other americans in 1751, after his half-brother died, George Washington became the head of the Mount Vernon estate, which was one of the best in all of Virginia. Oh. This made him a farmer at this point, and he called farming, quote, amusing, most delectable, honorable, and with superior judgment, profitable. He thought Mount Vernon in this way. He said that no estate in America is more pleasantly situated than this one. And he gradually increased his house and his estate, and he kept up with the latest scientific advances too. Now, the estate had a downside. It came with 18 slaves that he inherited. Now, George Washington was torn. By 1760, he had already publicly disapproved of slavery, but he was in a pinch. He could not get rid of his slaves. He was facing what could happen to him if he let him go and all sorts of things. And his number of slaves by that point had grown to 49. He was taxed on each and every enslaved person. At the time of his death, he owned more than 300 slaves. He did not need this many. He had way too many. He had to pay more and more taxes, more and more to keep up the livelihoods of each enslaved person and more and more money was spent to build quarters for them. They lived in possibly the nicest slave quarters in America at this point. In some quarters, some people say that he took care of the slaves better than any slaveholder in America at this point. He loved fox and duck hunting. He loved dancing, sturgeon fishing, riding horses. He loved cards and billiards. He weighed about 175 pounds during most of his adult life, and yet he stood six foot two, so he was kind of a tall and skinny guy. He had hazel eyes, and he was tough. 
He did like to laugh. <laughs> he had kind of a big nose, though, but was otherwise muscular, majestic, graceful, as he was described. But I guess that was what the ladies liked because he was liked by the ladies. And he was a flirt. <laughs> you betcha! He heard tales about the military all of his life, so he was endowed with the ideas of military service. At 21, he was appointed adjutant of parts of Virginia. On October the 31st, 1753, he was dispatched to warn the French about encroaching on Ohio Valley lands so as not to set off a war. He went through terrible, wintry weather, but reaching a French commander soon learned that the French were going to take the lands anyway. Washington wanted to warn the British of this news, so he hurried back, but he was tired and he was worn out and he was cold, and then he was fired upon by Indians, but they missed him. And he was able to reach an ice-filled stream, but he had to cross it. But he was suddenly and violently wrenched into the freezing water, and he became thrashing about, began thrashing about, and he was finally able to grab onto a stick and pull himself to safety. He nearly froze to death and wet clothing that night. As he began to rise through the ranks of the military, which included helping build a fort, he moved all the way up to a full colonel by 1754. However, as it turned out, Washington didn't always make the best choices. <laughs> and where they built the fort was a blunder. And the French defeated Washington and his men there later, and he was forced to surrender. <sighs> he again faced another surrender on another battlefield, but it was his coolness and his toughness during defeat that began to make him what he became. He wasn't always brilliant with military strategy, but his bravery was astounding and it astounded many. In one battle, he had two horses shot out from under him and four bullets pierce his coat. He kept fighting though, and eventually he won. However, the British did not treat him the way he should have been treated, and eventually he quit the military for primarily two reasons. One was slow pay, and the other was that officers from across the pond were treated better and given seniority over colonial officers. This really made him mad, and the seeds of revolt began to be planted right there. He stayed retired from the military for 16 years so he could run his plantation. On January the 6th, 1759, he married Martha Dandridge Custis. She was the widow of a very rich man. He inherited a fortune that day. Their marriage was not of romance, but lasted more than 40 years and was happy, according to everyone who knew them. So something must have been going on there, <laughs> after all. <laughs> he helped her kids from the previous marriage, although two later died young, and he grieved them. They never had any children together. As their properties got bigger and bigger, Washington divided them into little farms to be operated by an overseer in each part. He would show up daily. He would look over the operation. <clears throat> but then, if he saw something that needed to be done, he would take off his coat, jump in, and help with the farming manually right there. He wrote about this saying, quote, a middling land under a man's own eyes is better than rich land run by a man at a distance. 
He worked six days a week and then intermittently went to church on Sunday. It was actually recorded how many times he went to church and it was about 16 times a year. He spent much of his family life running his plantation. He had his water-powered flour mill, his blacksmith's shop, his brick and charcoal kilns, carpenters and masons. His fishery supplied shad, bass, herring, and other catches, and this food was provided to slaves. Coopers, weavers, and his own shoemaker turned out barrels, cotton, linen, and woolen goods, and brogans for all needs. In short, his estates, in accordance with his orders to overseers, was to buy nothing you could make yourselves. It was largely a very self-sufficient community. But he did send large orders back to England for farm implements, tools, paint, fine textiles, hardware, and agricultural books that could not be found in the colonial world. And it was painfully aware to him the British commercial restrictions on him and the taxes he had to pay, (laughs) which also sowed the seeds of revolution. In 1764, taxes were weighing heavily on colonials. He was present when Patrick Henry made arguments against the Stamp Act, as an example. This was the first move by the motherland to make the colonists very angry. Years later, he rejoined the military. In the 1770s, he finally began to say he may need to take up arms against his own country. He was chosen as a delegate to the Continental Congress. He was a member of the First and Second Continental Congress in 1774 and 1775. It was there he was elected their Commander-in-Chief in 1775. And this is what he said about it. Though I am truly sensible of the honor, I feel great distress that my abilities and my military experience may not be equal. In other words, he didn't feel he was ready for the job. (laughs) He largely funded the army at first himself. He took command of the troops, wielding a sword to defend Boston on July 3rd, 1775. Now you gotta realize maybe why he felt he wasn't ready for this job. After all, he was facing the world's biggest superpower. Think of how our country would be today if we were to take over some place across the world and they were to rise up against us and it just be a bunch of farmers fighting us. Think of how haughty we would feel about how sure we would win and think about the farmers and how we would be certain they would lose. That's what was happening at that point. He refused payment as general of the Continental Army and only accepted reimbursement for costs. From July 1775 to March 1776, he imparted discipline, work ethic to his volunteer ragtag army. And this began to turn the tide of this little army of less than a thousand, which began to exceed over 20,000 men. On March 17, 1776, Washington had his first victory when the British evacuated Austin. He moved on to New York, but it wasn't so great there. He had divided his army, and in this he proved he wasn't always the greatest tactician. His army faced a sound defeat. He lost 5,000 men, some to capture, some to death. 
and he was humiliated and driven back across the Delaware River. He had faced the British with an army so wounded and so sick it faced near annihilation. It was ill-armed, ill-clothed, and had no wool coats, and it was so destitute of shoes that the blood left on the ground marked the route they had taken. They were ill-paid, so many had been leaving the army. They were baited away from the army as well, accepting British offers for forgiveness in exchange for a cessation of fighting. They were ill-fed, not having a meal in a long while. The British were capturing provisions and commandeering their buildings as they fled. They camped across from the British for a week. They had 5,400 remaining troops at this point, and they were in a mess. George Washington had spotted a British garrison in the city of Trenton, New Jersey. General Howe had decided to winter there as well, in Princeton and in Trenton. This gave Washington an idea. And now to where our story began. This night, 247 years ago, on Christmas, instead of giving up and taking a winter break, which was the custom of all military action around the world, all militaries did this uh, during the winter, sometimes during the entire winter, sometimes just during Christmas break, they would stop fighting and they would rest and they would heal their wounded and bury their dead and feed their people and go home sometimes and stop fighting and then come back and fight. It's just a custom. Well, they knew that they were facing the end, that it was going to be over, that all of his troops would be killed by the British if they just wintered there and just sat there. So he decided he had to do something different. And Washington came up with a plan. Yeah! This is where things changed. He hoped to surprise a Hessian force of mercenaries that were better trained than him. They were sitting across that river. And when Colonel Gene Rawl actually heard that this plan was in the works, he said, ah, oh, let them come and laughed about it. <laughs> but at 11 p.m. on Christmas night, Washington's forces of men began crossing the half-frozen river in three different places. Henry Knox was helping him and attempted to move a cannon into one of the boats, which broke apart and sunk the boat. Only one division of 2,400 men made it across. The other two, made up of 3,000 men and some very needed artillery, did not make it. However, 50 horses and 18 full-size cannons made it through the darkness and the cold of the late December Christmas night. At approximately 8 a.m. on the 26th, 2,400 men were there, and they separated into two groups. They attacked the 1,400 Hessians who were groggy from partying from living it up, laughing it up the night before on Christmas. And they were very shocked, not expecting any kind of attack. By 9.30 a.m., they had surrounded the entire town and taken it over. They had captured over a thousand Hessians with just a few getting away. And they did all this at the cost of only four American lives. Though not particularly valuable from a military point of view, this was a huge victory from a mindset of morale, from a spiritual point of view, from a mindset of just having a victory in their pockets. Many Americans did not believe the British could be defeated at all, period. They saw that this was an exercise of argument, 
not have a real chance to have a new nation. This was their first glimpse at a new nation. They had defeated a part of the largest British expeditionary force ever deployed on planet Earth at this point. And the battle was on. So join us again next week for part two of our Greatest American Heroes series with the remainder of the story of George Washington. And coming up next, a guy we admire, even though he is gone, but we still admire him for all he has done to make Christmas better for all. Stay tuned to find out who that is. Christmas has changed so much through the centuries from figgy pudding to mashed potatoes, from roasted duck to spiral hams, from wassail to sparkling cider, from cabbage chowder to potato salad and cherry pottage to jello salad. Yummy. Christmas is different than it was 300 years ago. So why? Well, let's examine the difference. In a regular segment that we have, Inspire and Admire, and is usually about someone alive, someone we've seen this week or heard this week that's inspired us, we are inspired by the great George Washington. And this is why. First of all, he faced the greatest army and the greatest superpower that had ever existed on planet Earth at that point and willingly took the job to face them. Without George Washington, where would we be? 
Secondly, going back to one of my family lines out of England, and the only one, in fact, that is English. I'm, I'm sort of a crazy, got a crazy ancestry. I got all sorts of lines that go everywhere. Ah. Uh. I would have sat down yesterday to a bit of a different feast if I were a part of my English family at this point. We would have had some type of pork, but not something fresh, something that had been salted away because we were very poor back in England. We would have spent whatever little money we had for the year there on saving up for some very small items, some maybe fresh fruit or some hot chestnuts or something like that to go with it. But it would have been a very special feast for us, but it would have been very little, very pittance compared to a lot of what everyone else is eating. The very small middle classes that existed before George Washington, what little of them there were, would have done a little bit better. Perhaps some fresh pork, maybe a bird of some sort, but nothing large, and they barely would have paid for it. They would have had a few fresh items too, perhaps better fruit, chestnuts, berries, and perhaps some other nicer things like that. Yes. The aristocracy would have eaten a bit better. Special fruits like oranges. They would have had imported stuff. They would have had special sugary treats. They would have had a big roast pig or big roast goose or something really, really nice. And they would have had a special mead that they made with the sugar that they had, a special sugar that was imported, and honey as well that was imported, and nothing like the cheap beer, crappy stuff that we have even now. And this may be the one step down, (laughs) but everything else is better now because of the one guy I admire, the Revolutionary War hero, George Washington. Christmas was banned for a few years in America by the Puritans. Since Christmas had its real origin in a pagan holiday, they did not worship, practice, any religious beliefs, or celebrate the holiday in any way. In fact, you could be fined five shillings for doing so. In other parts of America, though, Christmas was okay. Yeehaw! As America grew and more immigrants spilled in, Christmas became much more of an accepted holiday. However, Thanksgiving was made the first official U.S. holiday, even before Christmas by President Abraham Lincoln. In 1870, though, Christmas finally became an official holiday. It finally started becoming what it is now, late in the 19th century, and in the early 20th century, began to become much more what we picture now with trees and gifts and stores advertising things and people hurrying out to shop and all that good stuff. So because of George Washington, we eat different, we celebrate different, we have time off, we think differently of Christmas, we spend the Christmas holiday in a different way. Before that, it was a king who decided everything. In fact, we do not even know how bad it was. It was bad for everyone. It was bad for slaves. It was bad for serfs. It was bad for everybody involved. And yes, I said slaves. There are some today that I've come across who think that slavery is an American thing. Americans invented it and slavery's only been around since America's been around. Actually, slavery ended with America in truth. Slavery began with the kings and the royalty going all the way back to biblical times. Slavery's been around a long time. And it was practiced amongst all kinds of people of all kinds of races throughout time. And it was ended with Abraham Lincoln and the United States of America. 
Slaves were treated a little bit better during the Christmas holidays. Everyone was treated a little bit better during the Christmas holidays, but only after George Washington. There were some people that had it really bad before that, even during Christmas. And that is what makes George Washington my inspiration for this week. Now, as far as how Christmas is celebrated, everybody does their own thing their own way. Some people don't even celebrate Christmas and they don't celebrate Christmas even amongst Christians. We do not know actually when Jesus was born, according to the scriptures. There is a pagan origin in Christmas, but it has become an accepted Christian holiday. Therefore, it is celebrated by Christians around the world. There, there are even some who do not celebrate Christmas even today because of its origins. However, this is the way I look at it. Who cares how it originated? Yes! Why not celebrate the birth of Jesus? A man who never owned anything except his clothes, never traveled more than a few miles from his birthplace, never had a regular job besides working with his father, was disowned by his own people, was crucified in a most disgusting and terrible way, and was tortured in a way I cannot even describe here, changed the world for the next 2,000 years, completely, from a world filled with a lot of hate to one more loving. What a man. Even among those who do not believe he was a Messiah or a God himself, many look upon him as a great teacher or a loving man or a prophet of God. Why not celebrate his birth? I realize not everyone does and that is their right, but celebrating such a magnificent man should be a holiday. Yes! After all, we celebrate the births of many magnificent men without where would we be? (laughs) Such as Martin Luther King Jr., Abraham Lincoln, Christopher Columbus and George Washington. We should celebrate Christmas in our own way. But thanks to George Washington, we can. Yes! And now, in a normal segment, we analyze something that has a little to do with something going on right now. And in our poli sci for the normal guy, we are going to talk about impeachment. The Constitution set aside protections to keep us from having someone take over the office of president who was really perhaps a criminal or a dictator in disguise. This would be someone who wanted to do bad things or as the Constitution defines it, wants to commit, quote, high crimes or misdemeanors. What is a high crime? Well, Webster defines a high crime as serious crimes committed by those who have some type of office or rank. What is a high misdemeanor? The Webster's Dictionary defines it as a crime that carries a less severe punishment or a felony. Mm -hmm. The Constitution set this aside for very serious stuff, not for child's play, not for, you know, ooh, I saw this, or ooh, this guy said this, or that said this, or whatever. It's about somebody doing something, not about somebody saying something. Let me be very clear. Andrew Johnson was the first president impeached. When a president is impeached, he goes through an impeachment trial. He is allowed to have a lawyer or a set of them to represent him for this trial. The trial is held in the House in Congress. They are the judge, if you want to look at it in this situation, deciding if the president is guilty to rising to high crimes or misdemeanors. They sort of indict him in a way. Then the House appoints someone to prosecute. The trial commences with witnesses and testimony and everything's brought up. All this is done, I should say, 
after an investigation, which is what we have going on now with our current president. The House is investigating Biden for some family matters and for his son's involvement with some nefarious international characters, as well as some money laundering and some ways that he dealt with money and drugs and some other things. After a period of time, the House deems necessary. They decide to vote on guilt and the president is impeached if he is found guilty by a simple majority vote. Now, it really throughout history has just been a slap on the wrist. It has never actually been used to remove a president. No president has ever been removed from office. Oh. Although in Richard Nixon's case, it probably would have happened. The votes were there to remove him because of some things that happened in the Watergate building. I won't go into it all to explain it because I don't have time, but you can look it up if you want to. He resigned on August the 9th, 1974 and became the only president to ever do so. <laughs> it does hurt the president in the public eye to be impeached, especially if the ruling partner can get some or all of the party to vote with them that's on his side. And especially if they can expose a bunch of stuff that makes him look bad, makes their party look bad, and hurt him in the next election, that kind of thing. They use it as a political football, I guess you could say. However, the real stuff happens if they want to make it serious in the Senate. <laughs> they are the jury. They can bring down the hammer. Several House managers, that's what they're called, now take their case to the Senate to prove guilt of impeachment and have the Senate decide the president's fate, whether he gets to keep his job or not. If two thirds of the Senate vote to find him guilty, he is kicked out of office. Out of here. And at that moment, the vice president becomes the president of the United States. He must vacate the White House. The closest we ever came was Andrew Johnson, the president right after Abraham Lincoln, who was only saved by one vote from being removed from office. We go all the way forward to Bill Clinton to find the next president who's impeached. And he was not in anywhere nearly found guilty. In fact, 55 voted against him being found guilty in the Senate. Many think Clinton was impeached for having an affair with Monica Lewinsky, a White House intern. This was not the case. He was impeached for lying about it under oath, and then lying about some other relationships with some other women, all under oath, because he was being accused of having sexual misconduct with them. Ooh. He did have an affair with an employee, and one that was much younger than him. And frankly, there should have been a feminist outcry on this. There was not. In any case, it did not rise to the point of impeachment in my eyes. It was an embarrassment to try and impeach him for some of the silly stuff that occurred at this point. Should he have faced legal action for some of the things that happened to him? Sure, <laughs> absolutely. Sue him, go after him, uh, do whatever you want to to him. But it didn't rise to the point of a high, even misdemeanor, although it could have been a felony, but it was not a crime involving the state, as I said earlier. Yes. It didn't involve things that involve the state. Uh, However, with Donald Trump, this borders on the ridiculous. The grandchildren of the people who brought the case against Donald Trump will laugh at them 
in their own history books. This was the most ridiculous case beyond belief. What was said or what was meant in a phone call. This is how the guy's still running for president and leading in all the polls everywhere. Yes. <laughs> because everyone sees through the stupidity of this. They have made a martyr out of him. And this is their own political downfall to do so. There was stuff far beyond this said publicly by many throughout history. It was stupid. Nancy Pelosi should be publicly ashamed for the rest of her life for what she did here. And she will be if he wins the presidency again because it proves that he was made a martyr. And they could have just had him lose and brushed him away. But nope, they didn't. They tried to impeach him again when he was no longer president. <gasps> and now we've reached Stephen Colbert and Jimmy Fallon levels of comedy and stupidity. What are we doing with the most sacred devices and the most honorable distinction of being in our government and using tools that were meant for serious stuff? It has become a comedy of errors and a mockery of fools. God help us. In any case, I won't address any more of that. As I said before, it should be used for very serious stuff when it is obvious that a president has committed treason, has gotten involved in ill use of money, some kind of abuse of government, abuse of government employees, office of the president itself, the practice of governing, not reading into things or finding out about, you know, people's love lives. That's for sure. I hope future generations listen to me on this. It will end this futility of anger and stupidity that has given China a lot more power. Next, we discuss a new segment, one where we talk about war and one which could be recurring with talk of war or acts of war going on now around the world. Stay with us.
almost 110 years ago. Today, this week, something major happened. And we talk about war and what happens during war and all the things that occur during war. This is something completely different. And this was the Great War, World War I. And in this next segment called War is Hell, or Could We All Be Well, this significant thing happened that changed the way we do things in war, even if it just happened once. And we'll talk about it. Almost 100 years ago this week, silence fell over the men facing each other. The killing, the shooting, the stabbing, the maiming stopped. Slowly, a moment fell throughout history that has never been revisited before in war. Could we ever have a moment like that again? Well, I will go back a little ways in this story so that you understand it a little bit better. To celebrate Christmas in 1914, the countries that were at war were trying to work out a truce so that the men fighting could have maybe a few days off to bury the dead, to make merry, to rest, and perhaps even go home, have some type of holiday. However, the countries could not come to an agreement with each other. Of course, they were at war, but sometimes, even at war, some countries agreed to a peaceful truce or ceasefire or something that works out for at least a few days, but nothing happened. So as Christmas approached on Christmas Eve, 1914, the men were despondent. All hopes were dashed. They were in the middle of, at that point, the worst world war ever, the worst war in history ever. They sat in the trenches waiting for word to stop fighting and to have a little bit of rest and a little bit of merriment. And word had spread that it could be coming, but it never came. It had been very bad weather. There was cold and frost on the front of the war. A few of the German men were sitting in their bunker and began to sing a Christmas hymn, Silent Night. And the singing broke out down through the bunker from man to man to man, passing strangely, almost as if it was meant to be passed all the way down through the bunker. It began to spread from bunker to bunker at that point. And more and more men began to sing it. And the sounds rose up into the air. And they rose up across the front. And just 30 yards away, (laughs) there were some Englishmen sitting in a bunker as well. And the shooting and the killing that had been happening slowly died down as the music came up and the Englishmen began to sing the song in their language together with the German men in their language and slowly it spread all along the front.
very soon, all hostilities came to an end and the men on their own made their own truce for the first time, at least in the annals of world history that we know about. Men not at the top or countries not at the top, not leadership, but just men at the bottom all worked it out together and came to a truce themselves. They buried the hatchet. Even though they'd been shooting and trying to kill each other just moments before, they stopped. They came out for a smoke. Some came out to bury the dead, others just to goof around. One of the men from the German side actually came forward offering a gift and slowly that spread too. And they started giving each other gifts, even exchanging goodies. And one finally presented a soccer ball to another and a kickabout broke out. While most went into swapping stories, others just started having a good time. Some though still bunkered down, nervous. And after all these men had been trying to kill each other just hours before, <laughs> the British finally went back to their bunker, the Germans back to theirs and quiet still held. But the British were ordered to fire on the Germans. They did, but the Germans did not fire back. And for a while, there was a further truce. These are just some of the stories that have been passed around, found written down, told by officers, told by men there, and found even written down in the journals and diaries of men who were there that night. It's an interesting thing because it was brokered by the men themselves with each other, and some just by singing, just by hearing Christmas carols. And as far as we know, these are the only truces ever in the history of the world brokered without leadership involved. In 2014, on the 100th anniversary, Prince William marked the event with a monument. But there's more. My question is, why not now? Why can't we have peace like this now? We don't necessarily need the leadership of, let's say, Hamas to broker peace with Israel. Why can't the Palestinians just work it out and bypass them? Step out a little. Let's work peace with each other. Let's come together as a people. Why can't Republicans reach out to Democrats and vice versa? Why can't we all figure out a way to get along better in this world? If you can be shooting and killing each other just hours before and then play soccer and exchange gifts and cards and whatever else happened on that night, we can do it today, for sure. And now a new segment, a couple of them that we have just started at the end of our program, a movie that protects us from political correctness. Now, this is not a movie for kids, folks. It is a different and unusual movie, but it does have a New Year's theme to it, which is why I bring the movie up. It is called The Phantom Thread. Ooh. It is a rather <laughs> unusual movie. It has some salty language in it, which is why it is rated R. But there is a made-for-TV version with some of that deleted that you may have an interest in watching. The movie's intense and a very dramatic film about a tailor who is a dressmaker in 1950s London. And no, right off the bat, I will tell you he's not gay at all. <laughs> 
This is my favorite part of the film because he works in clothes and Hollywood did not make him gay. <laughs> Why can't we do that anymore? We have straight men as chefs, tailors, barbers, teachers, professors, doctors, and other things all over the world. And yet in recent culture, they all have to be homosexual for some reason. Why? I ask it again. But again, this movie is not a politically correct film. This is set in the 1950s and anyone could be anything, right? We don't have to be stereotypical. Yes! And why would a gay person or anyone else want to play a stereotypical person in every movie that Hollywood ever produces? And this is why I do not like politically correct films that throw in a character and always make them the same way, the same type of character in every single movie. We can make movies without them having to fit some stereotypical politically correct mold. And I am glad this film does not fit that. Yes! In this movie, I want the truth in any case. The man is the opposite of gay, actually. He romances women throughout the movie. He is a renowned dressmaker whose fastidious life is disrupted by a young, strong-willed woman named Alma. He begins a romance with her, and she also becomes his muse for making dresses. The film is a little slow by modern standards and is a little over two hours, but I found myself lost in it completely after about 30 minutes or so. The part that makes this a New Year's Eve movie is the very elaborate scene involving a 1950s Hollywood party, and you get to see a 1950s London party, and you get to see how elaborate and extravagant the upper classes lived at that point in London. You see all the pomp and circumstance that goes into it. Daniel Day-Lewis stars in this movie and is absolutely brilliant. He is almost cruel at times, but manages a balance with smoothness. He has a subtle charm and a devilish confidence. The movie is not very well known, though it received six Oscar nominations, only taking home one for Best Costumes. It was also nominated for Best Actor, Best Actress, Costumes, Music, Directing, and the big one, the Best Overall Film. I thought at the time it should have won, but it didn't. In any case, it lost out to The Shape of Water. But the film will take you back to a time that is now gone in London, which is why I liked it. I lived in London and it had me look back at London before I ever got there. It also is an interesting look into the mind of people who can be wrong and not so good. (laughs) And you can see kind of what can happen to them or what can happen to their relationships, how they can destroy themselves. And that's what fascinates me about this movie. And now for our last feature, one inspiring quote or a big fat political joke. This week we go to the man himself, the man of the day, president, general, and legend, George Washington for our inspiring quote. The best one that I know is, quote, I hold the maxim no less applicable to public than to private affairs, that honesty is the best policy. And the other quote I really like of his, happiness depends more upon the internal frame of a person's own mind than on the externals in the world. Yes. And there you have it, folks. If you're not happy with your family around during the holidays, just change your frame of mind and you can be. 
Yippee. And with that, we wish you all a blessed New Year. Best wishes for the coming New Year. Please let us know what you think by telling us so. You can let us know on Facebook, X, which is now formerly known as Twitter, as we have a presence there. We're on any platform you listen to. We are now new on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, as well as Listen Notes. And you can hear us on Podbean, Spotify, Amazon Music, Boomplay, iHeartRadio, Player FM, and Podchaser. And listen next week as we profile the second part of our series on George Washington and learn more about his life and how he helped our country and became a hero to the world. Yes! You will also look into what causes politicians to drop out of a race, as well as Biden's impeachment inquiry. I am Craig Allen. You have been listening to Lefty Lucy, Righty Tidy, a Texan caught in the middle. Join us again next week for another entertaining look into the world of politics. Christmas lights are on.